This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. HRN is offering complimentary business memberships to 50 Black, Indigenous, People of Color-owned food businesses this summer. The deadline to apply is July 31st. Each business membership, a $500 value, is an advertising opportunity that will allow businesses disproportionately impacted by COVID-19 to connect with HRN's listening community and promote their work. To apply and review the terms and conditions, go to heritageradionetwork.org B-I-Z. Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm your host, Kathy Irway. So it's June right now, and uh, you might be growing this season. I know a lot of people who are just starting to garden for the first time. Maybe it's a result of um, boredom from stay-at-home orders, um, or maybe it's just it seems like the right time because you've gotten into cooking and then you wanted to explore the step before that, which is growing the food. And um, I got to say, I have a great little, I don't have any land, unfortunately, but I have a great little um, windowsill garden and fire escape garden here in Brooklyn. So uh, I'm really excited to, to share a book that will give you and I don't want to say fodder or food for thought because it's so um, overplayed, but it'll give you a lot of ideas. Let's say compost to feed your gardening projects. Um, this book delves into the culture, the history, the science, and the many uses of one crop in particular. And uh, it actually recently won the James Beard Award in 2020 for nonfiction um, books. So I'm really excited to talk with its author. His name is Chris Smith. The book is called The Whole Okra. And um, Chris is also the executive executive director of the Utopian Seed Project, which you can check out at theutopianseedproject.org. So welcome to the show, Chris. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Happy to be here. Um, Great. Awesome. So uh, if you if anyone just sort of noticed your her voice, it may have shattered the illusion that folks may have had of, of like a benevolent Southern farmer or perhaps cook or seed saver <laughs> who is obsessed with okra. But that's not the case. Instead, you are a British guy, a white British guy. I am a white British guy that came to the South and fell in love with okra and ended up writing a book on it. It's a bit of a bit of a strange journey, but um, here I am. It's amazing. Um, I loved your story about it. if you could tell folks a little bit about why you got, uh, I guess, obsessed with okra. I'd love to yeah, hear. Yeah, for sure. So I, when I first came to America, I began working for a small seed company in Asheville uh, called So True Seed. And so I was a gardener and a seed saver and that kind of thing. Um, but there's so many things you can grow in the South that you can't grow in England. Uh, you know, we, we have a reputation for, I think, mm-hmm. cab- cabbages, maybe. Um, okay. So, so it's <laughs> way more exciting to be growing stuff in, uh, in the South. Mm-hmm. And as a, as a wedding present, somebody gave uh, me and my wife an okra pod. 
It was a dried okra pod full of seeds. And they gave it to us because we had traveled to India and loved the cuisine and, and that kind of thing. But as a gardener and a seed saver, the the seeds in that okra pod came with this story about where she had grown them and got the original seeds from and where those seeds had come from. And so mm-hmm. as soon as you get into gardening and saving seeds, then you realize that there's this wonderful heritage that goes with them. And so I received those seeds and really felt a strong obligation to keep growing them and to continue the story of that seed. And that was kind of my my intro into having this real positive experience with okra that was otherwise kind of unknown to me. I'd had one previous experience on a trip to the South, which was not a good experience. It was the stereotypical slimy experience. Um, yeah. But when, once you grow something yourself, then you get to engage with that food on a whole different level. And that ah. began the journey of, um, of my okra obsession that led me to this point today. That's, yeah. I got to say, Chris, I once grew some okra, some red okra, and uh, it really surprised me. And I'm not like, you know, I'm not really an expert on it at all um, or growing anything really. But um, I went away for a couple of weeks and someone was supposed to water and didn't, <laughs> for whatever reason, water the okra. And I came back and it had dried, but also it grown woody and dried and split at the tip so that it was like it burst open like this macabre like tiger lily (laughs) with like in the most amazing way and i like i put it in a vase and it looked like perfect for like a a goth wedding but you know i was like wow okra is a crazy crazy plant yeah you don't get to have that experience with the plant mm -hmm. when you just buy it in the supermarket right you you just see that small green pod yeah once you grow it yourself then again, you get to interact with it on so many other levels and and the plant itself is quite stunning. And it's interesting because you do mention that a lot of people don't, you know, bother to check it out for a second time or even a first time because it has such a reputation for being unpalatable, right? Um, Yeah, yeah, that, that, that was almost, I, I grew up myself and, and enjoyed growing it and thought, wow, this crop is amazing. Uh, but then I would butt up against this negative reaction, you know, I, I go to a lot of agricultural conferences and, and the reaction would always be, not always be, the, the, the camps are split into people that truly get okra and, and love it and grow it and eat it and, and all the good stuff. But then there's the polar opposite as well, people that just entirely dislike it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's something that is also mentioned by Michael Twitty, who wrote the foreword for this book. Um, Michael Twitty is also the author of The Cooking Gene, A Journey Through African-American Culinary History in the Old South. And he is mentioned um, throughout the book, as well as many other um, African-American writers and you know food writers like Jessica B. Harris um, and so forth. And in fact, um, a you you mentioned that Jessica B. Harris said that whenever okra points its green tip, Africa has been, and the trail of trade evidenced by the presence of the pod is formidable. Um, so so getting into like the history of okra, you write that it certainly it almost certainly landed in the U.S. through the ports of Charleston and New Orleans in the 1700s, and now before it had sort of begun showing up in South America in the 1600s, but the the idea, um, and Leah Penniman, an author and uh, the author of Farming Wild Black, you mentioned, 
she she said that you know researching this um she found that her ancestors would even braid rice okra and millet seeds into their hair as an insurance for an uncertain future so that would be um you know africans who were enslaved and kidnapped and uh taken to america and uh you know that's that's the idea that we have of how the seeds, the okra seeds, crossed the Atlantic and came to America. But others, you write, have been skeptical of that. Like Michael Twitty had some other theories on who it was grabbing the seeds. But, you know, tell us what you think the research points you to um, when it comes to the most likely way the seeds the seeds came over and why. Yeah, I, I don't know if I'm necessarily qualified to to truly speak to one truth or another mm-hmm. and i suspect that probably all the above is is correct people throughout time have really valued seeds and seeds are a massive part of their culture and their heritage and i totally understand and believe that people knowing that the slave trade was happening and people were being abducted all along the west coast of africa would go to extreme lengths to preserve that cultural heritage uh, by braiding seeds into their hair and and having them survive the Middle Passage. Uh, Michael Twitty's point is uh, that there are uh, manifestos from the ships that show that the the people that were abducting people were also abducting their crops so that Mm -hmm. when they were trying to establish uh, colonies on the backs of slave labor, then they were able to feed those people their cultural foods. And it was a very intentional, malicious, horrific thing that mm-hmm. happened. Um, it, they were treating it as a business in people. And what better way to trade in people than to also bring along the food that they they eat. So it was kind of a very, uh, you know, t- t- horrible thing to read about, and, but something that we really need to realize that it was it was engineered to be that way um, in a very clinical way and that they profited from that by being very clever with the way that they were trading in people. Um, mm-hmm. So that, that's a reality that uh, is documented. So that's, that, that's the two things that exist is how it got here. And I, I kind of f- fully, fully believe that both, both could have happened. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but for the for the quantity and the speed with which these crops were established um, west of the Atlantic, then it, it's pretty clear that this this slave ship owners were also um, hmm. bringing across the crops as well as the people. I see. Well, you know, it's interesting, and uh, I don't know if you've heard of um, the. Uh, the the okra project um it's been going around in um the news a bit lately i i have seen that cropping up i i came across that in my in my research and checked checked them out Mm -hmm. and and love love that in fact i've just rushed back from Asheville. there was a a black trans um march that was happening in Asheville that um we wanted to attend and support and mm-hmm. it was and, and just this morning somebody another friend emailed me that project so lots of lots of people have been yeah. making me aware of it but yeah I'd, I'd come across that a few years ago and, and love what they're doing in terms of food security and h- helping out on that level 
Right, right. And it's interesting that they have chosen okra as like a symbol for this group. And, you know, just for folks who haven't heard of it, it's um, the okra project is supporting black trans people. And um, it actually it's it's supporting this community, which has historically been marginalized, ignored and mistreated um, and through food, through through nourishing, healthful meals that it is supplying. But uh, I think the idea is that the the analogy of the okra seed traveling to provide some sort of hope, right, for for those who traveled with it um, for a, a better future. Um, so. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I haven't spoken to them directly, so I, I wouldn't want to speak for them. But I, the yeah. the analogy definitely makes sense, like okra as a a food of sustenance um, and and hope. Uh, and and I think in in many ways, when we look at um, the enslaved people, they weren't allowed; they they were prevented from reading and writing and, and learning to read and write, but they were allowed to. Um, have their own gardens and so that's where we see some of these what we call traditional southern crops mm-hmm. um, got um, got established in a lot of these gardens things like collards and southern peas and okra uh, were grown as sustenance so um, that was one of the few liberties is the wrong word but you know the, the mm-hmm. few things that were allowed um to happen and obviously again that was another slaveholder intention it's it wasn't a a gracious thing it was like well if you feed yourself then you can probably Uh, continue to work i i I can't imagine it was an act of benevolence to say hey yeah go on garden (laughs) so that you can feel good um i i I doubt that entirely but um right but they they were allowed to have their own gardens and and, and grow these crops well that's being reclaimed and subverted hopefully with um embracing okra uh and, uh, of course, in this book, you know, I, I think it's it's interesting that you write, you dedicate a whole book to a food that is so maligned today, from a culinary per- perspective, at least. <laughs> so you start out by saying, you know, when the first, like, fried ochre that you tried was sort of given to you as a joke, almost, because it was so, it was thought to be so off-putting. But, um... Yeah, yeah, I... I... It, it it's it's something it was kind of that was the start that was and actually i started my presentations and the working title of the book was in defense of okra because i really i was shocked by how many people truly didn't like it or didn't get it and i wanted to kind of push back against that to some extent and this was probably began on in some level of ignorance i didn't really know or fully understand its entire history um mm-hmm. or even its entire potential but i mm-hmm. i knew from my beginning experiences that it was a crop with potential and, and wanted to speak more to that and, mm-hmm. and that's that's why I, I don't ever describe myself as an expert because I really don't think I am but I'm certainly an enthusiast and I've certainly learned a lot about it and want to share share that knowledge and encourage people to respect the food's heritage and also uh, em- embrace that as a food potential crop potential going forward. Right, right. So, so just so folks know, this is a not just a history book. This is, you know, the whole okra is explore. You explore um, how to use and like so many surprising ways to use this this crop, this amazing crop. From you have chapters dedicated to the slime, the pods, the flowers, the leaves, and the seeds. And I mean, there's stuff I've never heard of, like okra seed flour, okra fiber paper. Um, 
So I'm curious, at what point did you realize that okra was just so fascinating and multifaceted and versatile that you just had to learn more about it? It was, it was, it wasn't really a, like a, a light bulb moment. It was, I've always been curious about using the whole crop because mm -hmm. it takes a lot of effort to grow something. So you might as well, you know, maximize what you can get out of that yeah. crop. Uh, so I'd always been curious and just it, pretty clearly early on, it was like, oh, the flowers are edible and oh, the leaves are edible and they have protein and oh, you can press for an oil. And, and it was more of like a rabbit hole. The, the uh -huh, more uh -huh. I researched and read and discovered and went deeper into like 18th, 1800s agricultural texts or more recent university academic papers and and the more I dug the more I found the more could be done with okra and I don't think I got to the bottom of the barrel in this mm. book in the in the couple of years that it's already been out there or one year I guess then um I'm still learning people are still reaching out to me and saying hey did you know or what about this and I'm discovering new things all the time so I I think okra's got a long way to go and i think other crops that we grow and just assume that you can only eat the tomato and not realize that the tomato leaves are also edible you know th th this happens across the vegetable garden we just focus in on that one primary crop and ignore the potential of all the food that's actually out there mm -hmm. wow that is so true i mean i hope many people who are just now starting a garden maybe they find their okra <laughs> and we'll share it share yeah. those discoveries with us to come yeah and uh, also it's it's not really a discovery i i didn't really discover anything everything had already been discovered more or less right um, right right maybe the okra marshmallows i made up um or uh, so that was a new thing that nobody else had heard of wait. but um so wait did you say okra marshmallow do go we, on <laughs> uh, we uh uh, I uh, another author friend Katrina Blair wrote a book called The Wild Wisdom of Weeds, and she investigated the wild mallow plant, which okay. she made marshmallows from that plant. And I reached out to her and said, "Hey, I'm writing a book on okra. Do you want to do something crazy with okra?" And she, uh -huh. literally weeks after, she mailed me a box of okra marshmallows, which were chewy and delicious, and had a little bit of the green okra flavor, but mm. was sweetened with honey. And really, that's that's kind of like the secret weapon. You have to carry them around in your bag. And when people say, ooh, I hate okra, you have to you hand them one and they eat it and then they have to take it back and say, actually, OK, okra is pretty good. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, we're going to talk a lot more about some of those secret weapons uh, and more after a quick little commercial break. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. A cherry isn't just a cherry. When it comes to tart cherries, the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency Tart Cherry variety is the cherry with more. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. U.S. Montmorency Tart Cherries are also one of America's superfruit, which means they're good for you. Tart cherries contain many antioxidants and beneficial phytonutrients, including anthocyanins, the pigments that give tart cherries their bright red color. And don't forget about flavor. U.S. Montmorency's unique sour-sweet profile make them an excellent addition to yogurt, oatmeal, salads, trail mix, and of course, a classic cherry pie. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at choosecherries.com. 
All right, and we're back chatting more with Chris Smith. He is the author of The Whole Okra. And this is a book from Chelsea Green Publishing that came out last year. And it is the winner recently of the 2020 James Beard Awards. And it is subtitled A Seed to Stem Celebration. So, Chris, we were just talking a little bit about the history of okra, how it got here. Um, I want to talk more about varieties. But once for one, um, uh, taking it back for just one second, tell us a little bit about what you do at the Utopian Seed Project, which you are the director of. Yeah, so... It's kind of fun because the Utopian Sea Project grew out of my explorations with okra in, mm-hmm. and it sounds like we're, we'll talk about it briefly, but uh, in 2018, I grew 76 different varieties of okra as a large variety trial and oh. to play around with all the different things you could do with okra. And that kind of generated a lot of excitement in our community. I was working with local chefs and local businesses to do all sorts of things like okra flower tea and okra seed tempeh and okra pod kimchi and wow. you know all, all these really fun things that you can do with okra to really celebrate it as a food. Hmm. And and there was a fair bit of publicity came out of just that single project that so true seed the company that I was working for the seed company I managed to persuade them to let me set up the Utopian Seed project kind of on their hmm. time to take that idea of exploring varietal diversity and celebrating all the different food potential and sustainable agricultural potential with lots of other food crops. And so that's kind of the basis of the Utopian Sea Project is this kind of excitable exploratory organization that can do a lot of hands in the dirt farming and crop research and then taking that research and sharing it with chefs and and local businesses and really celebrating and educating around those crops and the diversity that's on offer in the farming systems or, or could be on offer if we were to embrace some of this varietal diversity and crop diversity and, and that kind of thing. So it's it's really an extension awesome. of the the okra, which is kind of a fun, a fun mm-hmm. evolution. Hmm. And any other crops that uh, you're working on right now? Oh my gosh, so so many crops. Um, we, we've kind of broken it down into different focus areas because there's so much to go at. We're pretty excited this year at okay. growing uh, tropical perennials as temperate annuals. So that's taken okay. a whole bunch of things like taro and ube and yacon and oka and mashua and all these other tropical root crops that you can grow um, in this region as annuals. Cool. We're continuing the exploration of, of southern food crops, the diversity in southern food crops. So we've now trialed over 150 varieties of okra, oh over 50 varieties of southern pea. Okay. Uh, we're starting to get into uh, an heirloom collards project that we're working on in collaboration with a few other organizations like uh, Seed Savers Exchange and Southern Exposure Seed Exchange and Working Food Group in Florida to kind of a much bigger collaboration to really explore some some of the diversity and heritage and history Another, you know, um, fantastic African American food crop in, in the South. Wow. So yeah, lo- lots, lots to go this at, is which amazing. is pretty amazing. I'm just like browsing around here, and there's like you know the cow peas and black eyed peas, conch peas. There's su- all in the southern peas category, and then of course oh, beans, huge, huge yeah. category. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And we're kind of actually we've grown way more than is represented on our website. We're, we're ca- we've got a bit of a, an admin lag. <laughs> but um, <laughs> so uh, we, we're pretty active with keeping 
up to date on our trials through our Instagram uh, cool. feed, and then we'll get it all on the website as kind of a reference research so that farmers can look at the varietal diversity or chefs could say, oh, I really want to work with that southern pea because it's got a delicate flavor and okay. works really well in this preparation. You know, we're doing a lot of culinary evaluations as well, Fantastic. which is, is really fun. Yeah, so you guys can follow that at Utopian Seed Project at on Instagram. And are you guys okay with the pandemic? And, you know, has that affected your work? Well, we feel pretty lucky because uh, we're not we're not a market farmer. So we're not relying on that income. Okay. For, we're set up as a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, you know, we have a Patreon account and we have some good supporters that way. And we have some family foundation money helping us in these first few years. So mm-hmm. fiscally, we're pretty stable. We were relying on a lot of events. We do culinary events and, and trial to table eating See. events and that kind of yeah. thing um, to to get our work out to people. And obviously, most of that is closed down. But we're in the growing season now. So most of the, the current work that we do in this season is in the field and that's mainly mm-hmm. mainly me and, and a small group of volunteers so we're able to socially distance quite easily going into the fall it's going to be a little harder because that's usually when we start doing more of these mm-hmm. uh, food food focused events and we're not going to be able to do that but oh, we'll um man. we'll, we'll uh, do more of these we'll podcasts yeah precisely <laughs> we're, we're able to do videos and podcasts and and obviously get cool. stuff on the website and i think we'll still be able to uh, achieve our mission it's just always very powerful to sit around a table and, and right, share, right. share food right. last year we did a okra taste test we had 48 mm. different varieties of okra and we did the same taste test in three different north carolinian cities with chefs that we invited in to trial all these different varieties and, and try and establish which ones tasted better so those types of events just aren't realistic at the oh moment oh my goodness oh that's so exciting um which one does taste the best <laughs> oh i i i try and avoid the the superlative but in, okay. in those p- particular trials then um one of the ones that came out was ranked really highly in in all the cities was this variety called ant mm-hmm. red it's okay. a beautiful deep red variety that everyone thought tastes really good it's got great texture and productivity one of my board member, um, the chef's farmer, he's called Jamie Swafford. He's on the board and, and mm-hmm. grew a lot of it that year and was selling it to Charlotte area chefs. And and actually this year, Slow Food Asheville has taken it up as part of their heritage food project. And we've managed to get the same variety out to a whole bunch of community gardens and home gardeners to, to grow this variety and really celebrate it. It's a Tennessee heirloom. And I I'm really quite in love with that variety. It's it's it, it ticks all the boxes. There's other oh, cool. really good ones, but I I'm enjoying that one at the moment. Wonderful. Is that the one on the cover, or am I seeing a few different red ones on the cover? I see oh, you have a. That's actually just one variety. Okay. Um, but it's it's had that's some awesome. kind of uh, variance within that variety. That okay. variety is a is called Sea Island Red, mm-hmm. and it's it's awesome. Oh, and this is, you know, we could just speak for hours about okra varieties, but um, (laughs) Sea Island Red is from the Sea Islands off the coast Mm -hmm. of Georgia. Um, So it's part of the Gullah Geechee community. And um, there was a seed matriarch uh, that lived on Sapelo Island called uh, Cornelia Bailey. And she's sadly since passed uh, Mm. away. But she before she died, she gave some seeds of this okra variety to 
another friend uh, at the University of Georgia called Sarah Ross, and she gave them to me, and I grew them out. And and it was a really good variety. But when the seeds arrived in my hands, they were labeled as Ethiopian red okra. Oh. And that really intrigued me because the the domesticated origin of okra is the Ethiopian region of Africa. Um, mm-hmm. So I was like, well, are, are these like truly descendants of the original Ethiopian okra variety? And I I didn't know how that could be because the okra that came across with the slave trade was West African okra. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, so it, it, the journey is muddled, but Cornelia Bailey was dead at that time. And there was nobody, I, I've tried chasing down the answers and I haven't been able to find out why these seeds were labeled as Ethiopian hmm. okra when they came from Sapelo Island. And I would love to know the history of that. Um, and I've, I've since sent those seeds, I've grown them out and saved the seeds myself and send them back to uh, Chef BJ Dennis, who's a Gulagichi chef down in Charleston, and uh, Jovan Sage, who's down on coastal Georgia. And I really feel like um, these stories, I, I'm fascinated by the stories, but they're way more culturally significant to certain groups of people. And I feel highly mm-hmm. obligated to get those seeds back to the people that really truly belong to um so mm-hmm. yeah Absolutely. that that's the island red variety is really really a, a a great variety and i'm i'm pleased that people are growing it back down in georgia so so the origin of okra you were saying is in western africa or that's just the origin of most of the ones that are in the states right now yeah yeah, that's pretty much it. Okay. It came across with the slave trade. And so right. okra is widely grown along the, those West African countries. And so okay. that's where yeah. the North American okras came from. But okra's true origin is likely to be East Africa um, and also probably has some heritage going back to um India, Northern India has a lot of the wild relatives of okra, whereas East Africa doesn't. Mm-hmm. So there's it, it's 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 disputed and unknown. To be honest, no, there's no actual right. factual answer. But India has a pretty good claim on the um, the wild heritage of okra, and then the Ethiopian oh, region of Africa has a pretty good claim on the domesticated region. Uh, mm-hmm. the domesticated history of okra so it, it some sort of wild stock probably came came from asia and then it was probably domesticated in the in ethiopia and then it traveled across africa and was widely grown in west africa and then with the slave trade it came across to the americas i see and it's it's widely enjoyed in india where it's known as uh, bindi um yes yeah and it, it, you were mentioning that you probably have eaten it in curries and, you know. <laughs> yeah, without knowing up. it. Yeah, right. I think England has um, a large Indian community and, and curry um, and Indian houses are, are all over England. So it's it's a kind of a common food. I, I think chicken tikka masala is technically the national dish of, dish of England, mm-hmm. um, which is yep. silly because masala is just like a, a random mix of spices. So it's like mm-hmm. a, a non-dish, but that's the way it's kind chicken of Chicken and spices. <laughs> pretty, pretty much, yeah. Um, so yeah, I pro- pro- okra has probably turned up in my life without me really knowing it. Um, but I, I, So I don't really count that as my first experience. Right, right, but, right. But India is the largest world producer of okra by a long, long way. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's very, I mean, it's not disdained at all, uh, as, as far as I'm aware. Uh, that, was, that was my assumption, too. I was like, if oh. it's so widely grown and eaten. But I, I interviewed a, an Indian chef who grew up in, just outside of Mumbai, uh, Chef Marwan Irani. He owns a mm-hmm. restaurant here in Asheville. And when I interviewed him, he, he had exactly the same story as as Michael Twitty's story and so many oh. other people's story about being a child that hated okra. Oh, I um, see. So I, see. I think it's widely used as an accessible vegetable in their dishes, but there's still there's still a whole host of people that <laughs> dislike it. So right, right. Th- there's something that goes beyond any cult- cultural thing. That There's actually something that people really don't like about okra. Um, with- and it's mostly because of that slime. Is that what... Is that what the childhood sort of like, you know? I think so. I think it's a te- yeah. total texture thing. Yeah, it's, mm. um, which some people grow grow to like or appreciate or learn how to cook it in ways that mitigate the slime. But and some mm-hmm. people, some people never get past that kind of stereotypical terrible vegetable level. Well, what's one great use of slime then that that you would? Uh, that you would suggest to, I, I see there's all kinds of, you know, okra cosmetics around the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People are using it for that. It's very mm-hmm. re- rehydrating. Again, mm-hmm. as with so many things, okra that can be traced back to African origins. There was a, um, a Zimbabwean tradition of using okra in face masks as a rehydration kind of skin, a uh, healthy skin thing. I can see that a peel or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but f- from a culinary perspective, the, the famous one that nobody really thinks about, it's kind of like everyone, everyone hates the slime until they need to use the slime. And that's oh. gumbo. Uh, yeah. you know, it's the traditional thickener of gumbo and that slime really binds it all together. Mm-hmm. The, the way that I, I, I don't see how anybody could not be convinced by this. Um, Virginia Willis in her book, Okra, which is a recipe collection of okra recipes, has a a Nigerian black-eyed pea and okra fritter. And she minces up the okra pod to make it into this gluey mass and and then mixes in like scallions and black-eyed peas. And I, I forget all the ingredients, but basically it's the okra slime that's binding that whole patty together and then you fry it and you get this crispy, crunchy, delicious, real fresh Ooh. tasting because it's got no flour, no eggs. It's it's just bound together by the okra. And so oh. then v- Vivian Howard in her book, Deep Run Roots, uh, which is a Southern uh, food cookbook, she has a similar recipe, which I forget what she calls it, but it's like a summer vegetable patty. Um and again, it's minced up okra, and then you just put in like fresh corn, scallions, yep. maybe red peppers, like all these crunchy, Sub- fresh summer sub-attash. vegetables. Yeah, okay. yeah, and it just sucks them all together, and then you fry it in little patties, and it's again just, it's like a wow. real healthy taste of summer that's only bound together by the slime, and you don't you don't <laughs> think slime when you're eating it because the the high heat kind of like just makes it all crispy and and delicious. Cool. There's so many fun uses. I love how, yeah, you have the voices of Virginia Willis, who who we love. We've had on the show a couple times, as yeah, well as San- awesome. Sandra Alex Katz, our fermentation guru, who says that this book is filled with interesting stories and great ideas for using pods, flowers, and more. I mean, there's just there's a there's a photo of you in this book with okra hair gel or conditioner. <laughs> <laughs> that's giving you a, a look that looks like uh, Edward Scissorhands a bit. Yeah. And uh, 
And then the I love the idea of this. Um, the older, woodier pods can work really well for the body scrub too. So, just yeah, tons. it's it's crazy how like some of it's kind of crazy creative, but a lot of mm-hmm. it's just like real. You know, if you're if you're homesteading, if you're gardening, if you just want to really think about maximizing your garden use, then it's really just a, a creative exploration of of all the useful parts of the okra plant, which uh, every part of the okra plant is useful and yeah. u- usually edible. Like m- most of it's an edible application. Right, right. Of course, of course. Yeah. I mean, but this is just, it's so expansive that, you know, it, and I love how you incorporate all the, all these voices of folks who have studied um, some of these uses before and cooked with it, of course, like, like for Ching and Willis. Yeah. I think that speaks to the fact that I, I, Again, I, I I describe myself as an an expert okra enthusiast, not an mm-hmm. an okra expert, and I, I think that's that's key to just me being true to my journey with okra. But also, you know, okra has this history that is way before and beyond me, and I don't mm-hmm. think I could have written a book about okra with any level of integrity without including those voices. Those voices are the ones that can speak to okra's cultural roots and those recipes are, are true to them in a way that I, I love okra and I feel a kinship with okra, but can never be truly true to me because I grew up in England where it's just not a part of a part of me on that level. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sad about that, but that's the truth. And so the best way to address that was to really bring in this wide range of voices to help tell those stories. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love how, um, you know, you, you mentioned you didn't even, you know, you didn't even get to the bottom of all of it. There's so much more that there could be another whole book, it sounds like, about okra. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm blown away so, by by that. Fascinating. By, yeah, how, how far it, it could take us. Well, you know, one, one gift, one random gift for a wedding <laughs> has taken you through such an amazing journey through okra. Um, and thank you so much for sharing it with us. It's really, really fascinating. We didn't even get through, like, you know, we just kind of barely scratched the surface of this book. But, uh, Chris, I do have to ask one more thing um, to kind of settle the score, you know. So can you call a dish a gumbo if it doesn't have okra in it? <laughs> now that's now we just leapt into controversy. Um, <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, there's been whole books written on on gumbo and I'm sure people will fight about it, but, um, but yeah, I, I think you can, uh, because there's been an okra and gumbo. It's part of it, like an evolution. It doesn't need to be a, a a this or that. And Mm. certainly I think the, the idea of having a thickened soup or stew with okra was like the beginnings of that, but it's, Mm. it's evolved over time. And there are plenty of examples of thickened Creole style uh, Louisiana type um, soupy stews that are have full claim to gumbo in their own right. There's legitimate um, uses of uh, powdered sassafras, the fillet, um, oh. as a thickener and being called gumbo. Um, and I, I like I read a lot about this to try and to try and get to the bottom of it. And maybe it's an unsatisfactory conclusion, but like all those claims seem to be, they have relevance. They have historical documentation. The the argument seems to come about like which one came first. And really, (sighs) you know, I don't, 
I don't necessarily, it's probably important to some people, but um, I'm like, this I, I take it from the other viewpoint. I'm like, oh, cool! I can use I can use powdered sassafras leaves to thicken a soup. Yeah. I can use okra to thicken a soup. I can do this. I can do that. Uh, or I could just make a, a roux, and and that's enough to kind of have this more modern style of gumbo. Um, but yeah, go, cool. Pe- pe- people have yeah. written way more and researched way more <laughs> on gumbo than I have, and they've come to the conclusion that gumbo is this whole diverse hodgepodge of things. Um, some of which will include gumbo, uh, okra. Okra, okra. I love that because, you know, it's an evolving, yes, cuisine is evolving. And so is okra and seeds and any plant that we eat. So um, I like that answer. Thank you. Um, and it looks like that's about all the time we have today. But I really hope everyone gets their hands on the whole okra and treats themselves to a, just a fascinating journey that you have um, put together here for everyone to enjoy. And, uh, and yeah, and folks can follow along your journeys and continue journeys with it at uh, Utopian Sea Project. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Great. And thank you so much for joining. And thanks, everyone. And Jeet, our, uh, our, our engineer here at Heritage Radio Network, we'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Your Words is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. <laughs>